going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 6. Now hear God's Word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. This is the word of the Lord. The, con- the context of this passage of Scripture is important. Uh, this was a time in the history of the nation of uh, Judah that King Uzziah, their leader, was dying. And uh, Isaiah and all of the other leaders in the nation were very concerned. Uzziah was a pretty good king, and they were surrounded at that time by enemies. And uh, there were rumors of war and uh, a lot of distress. There was terrorism, not unlike what we have today. There was economic uh, upheavals going on, not unlike today. Uh, There was uncertainty almost on every front, not unlike our own times, nor like all times. There have never been a period in history, in world history, where there's not some sort of chaos or cataclysm or something going on. Even if we live in relative peace here in the United States at periods in other parts of the world, there's ongoing conflict and war. And so they were living in a time that is familiar to all human beings, a time of great uncertainty. Their king is dying. And Isaiah goes into the temple, presumably to pray, and he encounters God in this extraordinary vision. There are very few of these types of visions in the Bible. Uh, Isaiah's may be the only one quite like it, Uh, but he encounters God in this context of uncertainty. And I want to begin the year, I know last week was the first Sunday, but this is my first Sunday back, and I want to begin the year uh, laying the groundwork for Uh, the reality that you and I must encounter God that same way. 
We must encounter God, the sovereign God, the God who is. Otherwise, we're going to be unsettled by uh, the, uh, uh, the problems that we see around us. I don't know. I can't remember very many times in our history, at least in my own personal life, where things have seemed so unsettled. The politics... Uh, in the United States is very polarized right now. The economy seems to be uh, never, never really solid, never sure. People uh, generally, uh, I think today, are scared. We're afraid. We're seeing terrorism even on our own soil. Uh, what we thought was only going to be over there is now over here, and it's probably uh, going to be uh, worse. And the church, what is most unsettling is that you... If you get on social media or you look on the internet, you see a lot of Christians wringing their hands and they're scared to death. And the, you know, that what I've called henny penny, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And it's my job and the job of your leaders to encourage you and hopefully focus you on hope and hope that we're not ashamed of, a hope that is real and genuine. And that hope, is found, I think, singularly in the sovereignty of God. Now, we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God so that we're not overwhelmed in these coming days, not just 2016. Who, who ever dreamed we would even say those words? 2016. I never thought I would see 2016. Now, the, some of you are too young to imagine that. But that is, a, that is a great, huge number to those of us that are older. We never imagined it. So, over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God and especially this. Listen carefully. How do we live with a sovereign God? How do we live with a sovereign God? If you're comfortable with the idea of a sovereign God, if you're comfortable with that, then I would like to suggest that you don't know what sovereignty is, one, or two, you've never met the sovereign God. Because anyone that ever meets the sovereign God is undone, like Isaiah. They're made very uncomfortable. And part of the Christian life, if you're living an authentic, a real Christian life, Part of that Christian life is a constant sense of tension because we are living with this sovereign, holy, great God who is beyond anything we can imagine, who is terrible and fear fearsome and grand and glorious and at the same time good and compassionate and loving. And it's putting all of that together that is so uh, difficult at times. But we've got to do it. So we're going to look at the sovereign God. Today, just to help us uh, do this, we're going to talk about three things. Look, what is sovereignty? I'm going to try to explain it to you uh, in a way that you can embrace it, although I don't think you can get all the way around it or completely comprehend sovereignty. But hopefully we can talk about it in ways that we can understand. What is sovereignty? why we need to embrace it, why we need to embrace it, not just be resigned to it, oh well, God is sovereign, He's more powerful than me, I guess I just have to accept it. No, it's more than that. 
we have to embrace it joyfully with, with a sense of grandeur and an anticipation, not holding our nose. And then finally, how do we live with Him? How do we live with God? Uh, I've already said, if you're living with the sovereign God, you should be a little bit uncomfortable. I am. And uh, I know that the biblical characters that met God were always a little unsure of their place. How do we live with Him? So let's go. How do we look? What is the sovereignty of God? Look at the first five verses. He's talking and giving you a picture of a God who is seated on a throne. It's one of the uh, one of the only very few images that we have of this particular thing. God is seated on His throne. He is robed in majesty and splendor. The light and the glory is uh, unbelievable. His train or His, his robes are so long, they fill the temple. If any of you remember uh, or have seen the clips, you can see it on YouTube now or anywhere, the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen of England. If you saw her coronation or you look at it on YouTube, you know her, her, the train of her robe went out Westminster uh, Abbey halfway out, you know. I mean, it was, it was a huge... Well, that was a sign of glory and majesty and power. And that's the picture that Isaiah is seeing. And then surrounding him are these creatures that are indescribable. He doesn't describe them in all of their glory because he doesn't have words, but he says they have wings and they have eyes and they're covering their feet and their eyes and their because the, the glory is too, uh, too magnificent, too resplendent for them to look at. And so they're covering, they're covering up. He's describing a sovereign king. Now, those of us in uh, democratic America, that's a little hard to get our heads around. What is a sovereign king? If we could go back a few hundred years, you would know. The king had absolute power, unquestioned authority. He ruled. His word was law. And when he said something, it had to be, it had to be done. And there was no questioning him. He had the right to rule. He had dominion and power. Power to back up his rule. Unquestioned. And this was a picture. What you saw was a picture of an ancient Near East a potentate, a king, a pharaoh, a, a, a human being, but one that had absolute power. Now all of you know that the problem with putting that kind of power and that kind of, of authority into the hands of a single human being does what? Yeah, it corrupts them. They can't handle it. They don't know what to do with it. And so you have seen through history, you have seen these potentates and kings and dictators. We've even had them in our own uh, lifetime. Adolf Hitler, uh, Stalin, uh, Mussolini. These people have absolute power. And what they say is the law. But in the hands of God, absolute power and absolute sovereignty takes on a different character. And, and Isaiah explains it uh, there in, in, verse, uh, uh, in verse 3. He gives a qualification. So what is it? It's this absolute power and authority to rule and reign. But how does... Isaiah qualify it. He says God is holy, holy, holy. How many of you have listened to R.C. 
uh, his, his series, Holiness of God? How many? Probably, I would say probably half. If you haven't listened to it, you should. That is the hallmark of Dr. Sproul's ministry, is the holiness of God. And holiness is a lot like what uh, 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 Stephen Yates was talking about last week. It's transcendent purity and righteousness, and yet imminence at the same time. It's that quality that God has that makes up his character, who he is. Ravi Zacharias says this, when, when you think of purity in a human being, in one of us, you think of the lack of dirt, of sin, the elimination of dirt and sin. But when we think of holiness or purity or righteousness about God, it's not the absence of sin, it's the presence of his holiness. It's the presence of His holiness that it defines His character. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Catechism, this is the Catechism for Children, question four asks this. I don't know, why would you ask this question? Well, they're smarter than us, so I'll ask the question. What is God? Like you could possibly give a definition, but they did a pretty good job. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal and unchangeable in his being wisdom power holiness justice goodness and truth now we could say a lot more yes but they're trying to codify something about god what is he they qualify who he is by these attributes and probably the greatest one is holiness why why do we know that because he repeats The angels repeat holy, holy, holy three times. This is what Dr. Sproul calls the superlative way of expressing holiness. It was like exclamation points. They didn't use punctuation in those days. So God is sovereign. Let me read you this and then we'll move on uh, to to the next next idea. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, which is uh, one of the standards of our denomination. And here's what it says in uh, chapter 3. Many of you have heard this before. I've read it in church many times. But just listen. I can't explain it all, but I hope you'll catch the flavor of what the divines were trying to communicate when it comes to sovereignty, the sovereignty of God, and why it should make us a little uncomfortable. All right? God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Anybody uncomfortable with that? You should be. Yet, this is a qualification. It should also make you uncomfortable, by the way. We can talk about it in Sunday school if you want. Yet, so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. Do you hear that, you hyper-Calvinist, you? Uh, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Brilliant. B.B. Uh, Warfield, I've told you this before, said this was the greatest paragraph ever written in the English language. Now, I'm not going to argue with B.B. Warfield, but that's quite a statement. So if you have 
a chance, read uh, 3.1 in, in the confession, and maybe we can talk a little bit about it in, in Sunday school. What happens with the idea of sovereignty is this, and I, I want to go over this quickly and then move on. We generally make two errors. Human beings, all human beings, make two errors when we talk about God's absolute power for ordaining whatsoever comes to pass. That should cause a shiver up your back, yes? We make two errors, and here they are quickly. Again, I don't have time to go into it too much, but depending on what your tradition, where you came from in your background, your religious training or what you've thought about God, maybe you never went to church, that's okay, but whatever you've thought about God, if you ever thought about Him at all, depends on how you look at this. One is fatalism. This is one of the errors is fatalism. Fatalism or uh, what you find in philosophy called determinism. Have any of you ever heard uh, that, that term d- determinism? I know most of you have heard the term fatalism. Here's the definition. It is a philosophical doctrine. Listen carefully because if you find yourself in these two errors, you're never going to be able to become comfortable with God. He's always going to be uncomfortable. And I'm trying to take us from from some discomfort to more comfort. Although I think we're always going to be a little bit undone by the real God. The philosophical doctrine that events are determined by an impersonal fate and cannot be changed by human agency or actions. In other words, uh, whatever's going to happen is going to happen, yeah? It's just fated to happen. It's destiny. There are transcendent forces and powers that are beyond our control. And if it was meant to happen, there's nothing you can do to change it. In, uh, in, in Islam, they say, inshallah, right? You all have heard that, inshallah. That means whatever God wills. Sound familiar? Because many of us are just Islamic Christians. Yes? I hear it almost every day. Well, I'll see you next week, God willing. Why don't you just say inshallah? That's what it is. It's, it's a back door. It's a way of, of cheating fate. But we, we clothe it with religious words because you know we want to be religious and Christians. So we say, well, if God wills, I'll do this. And there is a context in which you pray according to God's will. I'm not saying you never do that. But listen to the way we talk, and a lot of times it's just an escape valve. It's a way of saying, well, if God wills, if God wills. Isaiah doesn't do this. He is not fatalistic, and I'll show you in a moment what is so cool about this. The other, the other problem is uh, free will. Now, how many of you believe that you have uh, free will? Okay, there's two. They're at three, four five, six, these are the ones that are right, by the way, seven, eight, okay, it's going up now, nine, ten, okay. Of course you have free will. When you walked in, you chose where you wanted to sit, right? Did somebody hold a gun to your head, make you sit there? Did God foreordain that you would sit there? Say yes. Okay. Yes, of course you have free will. Yes, you have free will. Here's the second question. Is your will free? How many of you believe that your will is free? 
Sarah's right. Yeah, you're right. Yes, you're you're just you're ahead of the game. Y- yes, our, our our will. If you're a Christian, your will has been freed. But everybody's will, your free will, is constrained by certain things. Yes. I mean, I, I there are certain things I don't like to eat. Okay, there are preferences that I have. There are there. Are Choices that I make based on uh, outside forces, okay? Like my wife, she made me wear a blue tie with a lavender shirt. I never would have done that. Does it look good? See? So there you go. I mean, I have a... Okay, so, so, so our will has things working against it. So is our will, is our will completely free? No. Do we have free will? Yes. And if you don't understand these distinctions between fatalism and free will, you can never be comfortable with God. You'll become an Islamic Christian and always be saying, God will, God will, as sort of a back door. Or you will think that you are the captain of your own ship and your own destiny and whatever you do is just all up to you. And you're responsible for every single thing. And some things you're not responsible for. Some things God is responsible for. In fact, many things. Some things we are responsible for. Some things we're we're victims, yes? I mean, you have no control over somebody who walks into an office building with a machine gun and starts killing people. And I always wonder on the news when they say, how can we prevent that? There's no way to prevent those types of things. I mean, you can raise certain amount of security, but you can't stop them entirely because there are people using their free will to do what? Evil. They're using their free will to do. So one fatalistic, one terrible mistake is fatalism. The other one is uh, free will or autonomous. Perhaps what we should say is autonomous free will. Let, let's put it together. Why? Do we need to radically embrace that? You know, Stephen talked about it last week, that to have a good understanding of God, you must embrace both transcendence, that means that He's above us, if there's such a thing as a God, any kind of God, He, She, It, whatever you think God is. By definition, God is somebody other than you. Yes? I mean, way above you. And yet... If, if we're going to bring God into any kind of concept of a personal relationship, you're going to have to bring that idea of God down into where you live every day. I don't care what religion you are. You've got to bring some sort of contact to God. And human beings have been doing this from time immemorial by creating religions in order for us to have an interface with God, whatever God is, he, she, it, whatever. And so we want to have the imminent, we want to have the personal relationship, but by definition, God is transcendent, as Stephen did such a great job. So so why do we need to embrace it? We must embrace it because that's the God who is, right? By definition, that's who He is. You can't change Him. You can't tame him. You can't settle him down and squeeze him into a box or into a bottle or into a lamp like a genie because then you don't have God anymore. You just have some version of yourself. Yes? Do you see? 
We have to let Him go free and be who He is and find some way to be in relationship. So why did Isaiah uh, need to encounter this God and embrace who He was? Well, let me give you just a few. Uh, I can't give you as many as I'd like, but here's just a few. First of all, we must, we must have this God, this sovereign, transcendent, and imminent personal God. We must have Him because it reveals our true identity. Get it? Reveals our true identity in light of His. Verse 5, Woe is me, I'm lost, I'm undone, I'm ruined. The Hebrew word means it's devastated. He, comes to, he goes to pieces, literally. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in a nation of people who are unclean. He recognizes the beauty and the holiness of God, but at the same moment, he sees his own weakness, his sin, his depravity. He sees it clearly. And I would suggest, folks, that only, only when we encounter the God who is this true God, holy, transcendent, only then, will you really understand who you are and how greatly uh, you need Him. How greatly you need Him. And then the second thing that Isaiah sees and the thing that we have to reckon with is that this God, once we are revealed, in other words, once the mask has been taken, how many of us do you think are wearing masks this morning? Let's see everybody's hand out. Yeah, of course. We come to church by... Church is the biggest masquerade on the planet. And, and we have to mask up. We have to camouflage who we are because most people would be terrified to see you the way you really are. Amen. Yeah. I wouldn't want anybody to see me the way I am. And, and neither would you. Okay, of course not. We have to cover. But God sees us as we are. Down to the bottom. He sees you as you are. And not only that, He sees things about you that you don't even see about yourself. Both things that are bad, but also He sees good things in you. Things that He has put there Himself. That He is grooming and cultivating. That He wants to bring out of us over a lifetime. Isn't that great news? You see, He sees everything. He is sovereign and he sees and he knows everything. So it reveals who we are, our true identity, but it also deals with that terrifying identity. Look at verses 6 and 7. The seraphim flies, takes a burning coal, and touches his lips, lips and mouth and all, you all know this, is tied inextricably to our behavior. One of the ways they talked about how you act is how you speak. Not just verbally, but inside the voices that are going on in our mind. We think that you know, schizophrenic or psychopathic or sociopaths are the only ones that have voices, right? We all have those voices. It deals with that reality. He takes the coal, the burning hot coal, and he places it on the lips of Isaiah and cauterizes, if you will, the sin of his life. He kills it. He puts it to death. And he says to Isaiah, 
Yes, you are undone. Yes, you are uh, ruined. But I am going to deal with it. See, that's your true identity, yes. But here's, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to let you deal with it. And folks, to encounter the sovereign God, you have to know that. That He does not, how many times have I told you, folks at Christ the King, God is not holding His nose when He looks at you. He loves you with a love that is unimaginable. The only, the only cognate, the only parallel that you can put to God's love for you is His Son on a cross. This way. This is how He loves you. Not how much. There's no, there's, it's infinite. So He doesn't say this is how much He loves you. This is how He loves you. He gives His Son for you. The sovereign God. He reveals that identity, but then He does something about it which we can't do. We cannot fix people. How many people made New Year's resolutions? Most of them get broken. The statistics are astronomical. It's hard to change. But I'll tell you what, give your life to God, the sovereign God, and He will do things that you never imagined possible to rearrange your life. And then finally, He gives us He gives Isaiah, graciously gives him. No merit on Isaiah's part. I mean, he's undone. He's ruined. He's a sinner. I've seen God. I should die. He gives him a new identity. That's verse 8 and 9. God asks this question. It's really kind of cool. He says, whom shall I send? Whom shall I send to carry this message to the people of their sin and their need for the sovereign God. Who shall I send? And Isaiah, instead of being a fatalist and saying, well, God, if God wills, if God wills, he jumps and he says, send me. He doesn't back up into some sort of will of God. Well, if he wants me to, he'll let me know or any of that. No, he charges and he says, send me, send me. He's like the, what was the name of that, that student in the, the old 70s? Horchak. Right? Y'all remember? Me, me, me. Oh, I'm out. I'm totally... Okay, never mind. Either you're too old or you're too young. I don't know. What, what, what world was I born into? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Here I am, he says. Send me. I'll go. I'll go. And so God says, Go. I've revealed your identity. I've fixed your identity. I've dealt with your sin. Now go. He graciously gives him a new identity and says, go, be my mouthpiece. Be my prophet. Be my voice. He doesn't make those two errors. It's not if the Lord wills and it's not I decide. He appeals to God's sovereignty. Here I am. Send me. If you want me to go, I'll go. I'm here. How do you live with a sovereign God? First of all, folks, you're going to live in tension. I would suggest that you're always in a little bit of tension if you're worshiping the true God. Now, maybe you're not, and and if, if you're not, that's okay, that's good, but I would suggest that we're always a little bit off balance with God. And doesn't it stand to reason? Because if He's God, and God by definition is someone so transcendent that it's hard to even imagine that God, and yet so imminent that He knows you down to your bones, down to the bottom. If that's true, if that's true, that should unsettle us a little bit. And we would say, woe is me, verse 5. 
I'm lost, I'm ruined, I'm undone. There would be always a little bit of discomfort. You know, folks, on my best day, on my most holy day, whatever that is, on my most holy day, I'm still not worthy, right, to stand in the presence of that kind of a God. I've got to have somebody there to represent me. I've got to have something in between me and Him. Because the flames are too hot, yes? It's like being looking at the sun. So, how do you live with Him? Well, you live in this way, quickly. Let me finish with this. In radical repentance, I've told you this for 13 years that I've been here, folks. We need radical repentance. And I hope that you will start 2016 radically repenting of your sin. In radical faith, in other words, you're going to embrace the sovereign God with the tension, with the uncomfortableness, with whatever questions you have. You're not going to draw back. You're going to come near and embrace Him like Isaiah did in radical faith, radical repentance, radical faith, and then radical obedience. Here I am. Send me. I'll go. And you know what God told Isaiah about his going? You're going to preach your whole life. Nobody's going to listen to you. Everyone is going to reject you. And so when I leave here today and I'm complaining and carping uh, to God about my terrible sermon and nobody ever listens and all, you know, all my whining, you, you know, I don't, I don't really do that. I'm just kidding. Now, of course, we all whine and complain. But instead, we say, you know, I serve a sovereign God, so whatever He wants, I will accept, even if I don't understand. Because that's the heart of true faith, isn't it? Trusting Him, even when we don't understand, because by definition, you couldn't understand everything about God, could you? If you understood everything about God, it would just be you. He's that sovereign, that transcendent. So how is it possible to live with God? Your guilt is taken away. You need His sovereign grace plus nothing. This that we just read is in chapter 6. Isaiah preached a lifetime through, I don't know, four kings, I think. Okay? And at the end, in chapter 53, this is what Isaiah said. He starts with this. Who shall I send? Isaiah says, send me. I'll be the volunteer. Isaiah goes through a lifetime of preaching his heart out. Nobody listens. And in chapter 53, from 6 to 53, Isaiah says this at the end. Who has believed? Who has believed my report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who? Who's listened? Then he describes his message. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like the root out of a dry ground. He had no form. He's, he's describing the Messiah. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. No wonder nobody was listening to him. He was describing a weak man. A man with no power, with no robes, with no regal splendor. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. This is 700 years before Jesus. He was despised, but we esteemed Him not. 
Surely, listen folks, surely He has borne our grief, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But, but, He was afflicted for our transgressions, pierced and crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, every one to His own way. And yet the Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. Now here it is. Yet, it was the sovereign will of God to crush Him. It was God's will to crush Him, to put Him to grief. Because when His soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see His offspring. That's you and I. When He gives His his life on the cross and Jesus is pouring out His life's blood, He sees you and me, His offspring, and it brings Him delight and joy. And so it's God's will. Imagine that. You'll never plumb the depths. I don't know of a single theologian that has ever plumbed the depths of that one statement. It pleased God to crush Him because of the joy that was set before Him. You and I, imagine that, are so beloved that God would crush His Son for you and I. How do you live with a sovereign God? You run to Jesus Christ, the King, the One who set aside His robes of majesty and died naked on a cross so that you and I, as unworthy as we are, could be clothed with those beautiful beautiful robes, unspeakable. Can you imagine? Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, it's so unimaginable to be called into Your presence by Your great love. It's incomprehensible and it's, it's unsettling at the same time. I, I don't even understand it myself how you could have looked upon me with special love and yet you did. And you have looked upon so many here in this room and around the world with a kindness and a love that we will spend eternity trying to understand. Father, please, as we come to your holy table, as we come to the sacrament today, we ask that you would feed us in our hearts by faith with the signs of that great love, the body and blood of Jesus, our King. Help us, Father. Save us. Have mercy on us, our Lord. And keep us, O God, uh, by your grace, we pray. Amen.